Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Let Yourself Unlearn Everything You Thought You Knew About Yourself is one of the many important life lessons George M. Johnson shares with young readers in their new book, All Boys Aren't Blue. George calls the book a memoir manifesto, and in it, they grapple with sexuality, gender identity, assault, consent, and black joy, and I found it to be an utterly invigorating read. Today, we discuss the lessons we're being called to learn and to metabolize from our journey through an immensely challenging year, the important work of making ourselves whole, and love as a starting point for friendship. George shares their thoughts on vulnerability as a necessity for storytelling and why they felt it so important to open the book with a rather bold affirmation, I want to be immortalized. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with George M. Johnson. George, thank you so much for being here and for making time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners. I'm really grateful. Yes, thank you for having me today. Um, The first thing I want to say is I'm so grateful to you for All Boys Aren't Blue and this, what, what feels to me to be an incredible contribution to queer Black letters, as it were. And just reading through, I felt so seen. I felt so recognized. There were so many moments of recognition um, in All Boys Aren't Blue. And I'm just really grateful that you put yourself, your family and your story out there like this. Thank you. Um, I think that's the the best part about it is how well it's resonating with so many people, honestly. Uh, you're never sure like if people read your story and be like, oh, like you was kind of crazy in the head as a child. <laughs> so I'm happy to know that I was not alone in my in my craziness. Yeah, um, I'm a, I want to get to that actually because you you say something that I want to that I want to that's I know how I want to start the conversation. But first, I want to ask you what I've started asking all of my guests. How's your heart? Oh, see, that's a good question. Uh, I'm actually pretty well today. Uh, I was really really sad Saturday. I don't know why I was sad, but I was. And so I just kind of was like, all right, well, I'm going to be sad. I think, you know, partially, I think we are hitting a national grief and mourning period. And I think uh, it's really started to hit us now that we are one year in to 
the pandemic, that things are not going to change as swiftly as we may have wanted them to. Um, and so I think it's just been a little heavy on the heart because uh, you just you, you start to miss your family, you miss your friends and like moments like you, we lost a whole year of moments and uh, you can't get it back. Uh, but I will say today's been a today's I feel good and uh, heart feels good and started a new like daily routine this morning. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah. And what does that daily routine involve? Yeah. So uh, I, I get my tarot read uh, monthly and I'm very, very into like just spirituality and the universe and uh, how we, you know, how our purpose is and everything. And so uh, my tarot was basically saying like this, this year is a, a foundational year for me uh, and will dictate my next decade. And so like, I really needed to start to get my practices in order. And so uh, basically this morning I, you know, was like, all right, this will be the first day that I like have a set schedule. Like I wake up, I uh, pray at my altar um, first, and then I go to the gym and then, then it's shower, then breakfast, then like, like a really, really like scheduled out day of like how my work day should look, how my taking time for lunch, taking time for rest, taking time for dinner, and then like ending the night off with trying to do some reading. Um, yeah, and I, and I, you know, wrote out this full schedule and, you know, gonna do my best to try and stick to it. Of course, you know, things will change as life changes and I have more work to do and, you know, TV and on set and all of that, but at least starting, at least having a morning routine, like before my day starts um, and centering myself and talking to the ancestors is, is the new thing I'm on. Mm, I struggle so much with that, with routine. I, I find myself like utterly like disgusted at the fact that I might have to follow some sort of schedule. <laughs> I find it so <laughs> like so restrictive. <laughs> but you know, you gotta, you know, if 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 you're like us and you want to help change the world or make the world a better place, it does require a bit of structure. So I'm, I'm learning. Yeah. Um, you say that um, you know you're you're spiritual and you speak to the ancestors and and the universe. Do you think there are any particular lessons that we've that we're being taught? Um, or that we have been taught over the past year that, that you hope, sorry, do you think there are any particular lessons over the past year that you hope land in people's lives? Like, what are we supposed to learn? Yeah, I think one of the main things, um, you know, is about time. You know, time is, you know, time is not granted to everyone. And so we don't know, you know, how long a person is going to, to be here, right? Like, I'm, I'm sure before going into the year, no one thought 500,000 lives just in this you know country we're at 515,000 no one thought we would get move a year and be less 515,000 people uh because of this so you just don't know and so one is like you know giving giving flowers when people can still smell them because you just don't know anymore um and I think the other thing that that we are learning is if you are not taking care of like climate, the planet, um, if you are not taking care of home and taking care of things and, and taking care of yourself, um, then, then the body and the mind and the planet will reset itself. And I think that is something that we all are going to have to take away from this is that the planet got to a point and, and reset itself. 
And, you know, people have been interesting. People have been like, this is the first year we've had seasons. And I'm like, yeah, because less cars on the road, less emissions in the air, less people in buildings, less heating, less this. Yeah, the, yeah, the planet reset itself. And I think mm. that is something that we all will have to take away. And sometimes a reset looks like, um, and then we always say like when we're, when we're moving into the dawn of a new era of life, a lot of death happens. Um, whether it was the Civil War, whether it was the, the, the flu, whether it was any time like you see the world like transitioning to whatever the next iteration of the world is, you see a lot of death. And so it's just one of those things that you kind of have to take in. Um, old folks always say like people die when seasons change, you know, and um, mm. I think we have to in, in many ways look at it from this universal lens of the world season is now changed and this new world moving forward will not look like the world before COVID. Yeah, and we're being called to do something about that, yeah. right? We're like, we're, we're, yeah. we're no, I think we understand that we can no longer be passive right. Um, right. in this process. Right, you have to be active in it, right? It's like, and it's interesting, right? Cause like, even when we're looking at like the whole anti-racist movement, it's like, it's not just, it's just, it's not enough for you to not be racist. like like the bar is in hell if if you think that you are doing enough simply because you are not overtly racist or not racist in your your, your mind right you mm -hmm. have to actively be doing things to end it or you are also part of the problem and so just like you were saying yeah you are we are all being called to do something like you cannot continue to watch death and continue to watch people suffer um, and think that because you don't overtly play a role in that suffering that you are you are doing your part. Um, I was very struck, um, very close to the beginning of the book. You said something I thought was quite grandiose, but in the best way. You write, I want the words of my life story to be immortalized. I want to immortalize this narrative of joy and pain, this narrative of triumph and tragedy, this narrative of the Black queer experience that has been erased from the history books, an existence that has been here forever. And I'm not gonna lie, I like took a step back and I was like, who does who do they think they are? <laughs> like it's such it's such a grandiose statement. Mm -hmm. And I read it again and I thought, absolutely, right? Absolutely. These, your stories, our stories, this story, the story of your family deserves to be immortalized. I, I just thought that was such a, not brave, but it was such a bold way, I think, to open this book. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. Like when you know who you are, you just know who you are. And I probably, and my friends will tell you, I go through the biggest denial of who I am. And they're always like, George, you are George, like, you know, accept it. Like the kids are not calling you their James Baldwin for fun. Like this book is the book. It is, it is what it is, you know? And so I think it's funny because there are moments where I may write something like that. And I, that is me acknowledging to the universe. Like I fully understand what this story is going to mean to, to it. And so this is not for me to be like, I want to be looked at when I'm, you know, gone, my legacy, I want to have a legacy like Toni Morrison. That, that's, that's not what, what that's saying. What it's literally saying is I fully acknowledge and accept what my purpose is here. And I fully acknowledge and accept the fact that uh, this story is going to be immortalized simply because 
uh, it has to be like, it, you know, we can no longer ignore the story uh, and we can't ignore it because I'm alive. And I think that's the big difference, right? A lot of the, a lot of us coming to the understanding of who a lot of our queer ancestors were, were after their death or after their, their peak. And with my particular story, I have not even, I've not reached that. I am yeah. beginning. And so there's a, it, it is harder to deny a story when the person is still here and actively living the story and the world is watching the story play out. Yeah, and it's that demand right it's 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 a demand that i deserve this right and it's and it's explicit which i think is what is so bold about it because you know we're living lives in social media as you say the world yeah. is watching but not so many of us are making that explicit demand that we want our lives to be immortalized right because this is what we're doing right everything yeah. is kind of archived on the internet we're putting it out there for 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 people to with intention hopefully for people to marvel at to wonder at to ask about to to follow. Right. And so I really liked that you that you said it, <laughs> that you said this thing that so many of us probably don't have the guts to say. The back of the book says, be bold, be brave, be queer. Um, it is what it is. Like, I, I, if I'm gonna walk this space, I gotta walk it, right? Like, I can't put a story out here and then not, and then go hide, you yeah. know? It, that's not that and and that was the decision when I put my my faces on the cover of the book. My you know, my story, the vulnerability and and everything that I told, it wasn't for me. It was because like I came to the the understanding that listen, either you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. And but but there is no in between this time. There is no 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 middle ground with with this particular story, uh, especially when we're watching queer kids die. We're watching black queer kids die or be killed. Uh, we're watching black queer men die or be killed. We're watching black trans people die or be killed. It's like, no, like either you're gonna do it or you're not. And so that was really the realization of, um, Again, why I said it's a manifesto. Why I said I said a lot of bold things. Yeah. <laughs> I said I did. It was like talk your shit, right? And it was like, okay, well, if we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it. Cause people be like, you really called your memoir a manifesto. I'm like, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and did. And but it's funny now because now people are seeing the shift happen. People are seeing how it's going in school systems, and people are seeing how cis people are like, damn, I didn't realize it. Like. Mm -hmm. We really do some messed up stuff to y'all. It's like, you do, like yeah. you do. And it's creating a conversation, a national conversation, an international conversation, right? Because the book is now going overseas. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a manifesto because it's a declaration of this story. Like I said, it's always existed. Um, the main thing I keep saying now though, like the thing that the ancestors, like that keeps hitting me is like, I'm just, I'm not the first one to tell it. I mean, I'm just the first one to tell it, excuse me, um, or the first one they allowed to tell the story, right? Like, that's really what this is. Right, okay. I just got allowed to tell it. Mm. But this is the story of, of my people from slavery, my people pre-slavery, my people pre-colonization. We always been here. Yes. George M. Johnson just happens to be the vessel to tell it. And, uh, and, and I, I get to make the bold declaration in that because because I got to tell it and, you know, and I have the ancestors back at me to tell it, so. Yeah, and I think a manifesto is setting a remarkable intention as well. I remember when I started busy, I did a statement of intent. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I wanted it, I wanted people to know that this is not, 
this is not supposed to be perfection or right or the be all and end all, but it's, it's just an, it's an offering of, of us trying to figure it out together. Yeah. And I feel like All Boys Aren't Blue does that too. You're right. It is us figuring it out together. Um, you know, we are moving as a collective now for the first time publicly. And I think that's something we have to talk about a lot of. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I had a conversation with um, uh, Juby Ariella Headley, whose um, okay. latest poetry collection, Original Kink, just came out. And um, he was kind of mentored and had a close, you know, personal relationship with uh, Craig G. Harris. And we had this conversation about, you know, connecting to a legacy before us. And that people like Melvin Dixon and Essex Hemphill and Asado Saint and Craig G. Harris kind of put forward this documentation of their lives, knowing full well that their lives were finite. You know, many of them were, were dying of AIDS and, and had to create this kind of prodigious body of work so that they would be remembered. And one of the things that Juby says is that it's actually taken a lot of us a long time to wake up to that call, um, to respond to that and to, and to decide to do something about it, to carry yeah. on that legacy. Yeah, the work has to outlive you. Um, and I think a lot of people, they write, they, they write for the moment. I don't write for the moment. That's something I, I have no desire to write for a moment. Um, the work has to outlive you. It has to, it has to mean something to the child that I don't know 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of like what, what my attention, what my attentions are with anything that I'm creating is that the work is not just something that that lives in that moment. Like it is mm -hmm. something that can live in any moment and then stand the test of time uh, as, as as we watched many texts be able to do that we continue to read. Uh, and th that's yeah, that, that was ultimately uh, the intention behind it was was knowing this was not about a moment of telling my story. This was about it, some a text that needed to live beyond me. Uh, yeah, in many ways. As I was reading the book, I kept thinking, how have they remembered all of this, all of their life in such detail? I was joking with a friend the other day that I can't remember most of my twenties, <laughs> and like, and so I'm very curious. About, do you have a process for remembering? <laughs> that's so funny because I, the first time I the first time I got that question was yesterday someone asked me the same thing and I was like I guess I never thought I, I guess I assumed everybody remembered a lot of the stuff no. from their past <laughs> um I think the best the the kind of explanation I started to go into yesterday was like I think it's um we I don't know like because I talk about a lot of tra traumatic things I think I do a great job of connecting who I am now to, to what triggered it, what triggered the moment. I think a lot of people are working to figure out like, well, how did I get to be this person today? Like, but I think they don't necessarily think about the moment the thing happened that created the thing 20 years from now that's happening. I do that a lot though. I'm very self-reflective of like, well, what moment made me hate smiling? You know, because I knew I didn't like smiling. I never liked smiling. And I was like, well, what moment was that? And like, I was able to just sit and be like, that had to be the moment. Like, mm. that was it. Like, that, that had to be the moment when, when that all started to become an issue for me, right? Um, I, I'm not big on people coming up behind me or like being behind me. And I was like, where did that come from? And 
the moment in the bathroom. Like yeah, it was I like, was just thinking, oh, that's from the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> it was from the bathroom. I, to this day, I still have like an, an, an I have, uh, I have like a, I have to like tell myself, like even like during, during sex, um, I have to tell myself like, this is okay. Like, it's okay. Like if a person, even if a person is on, I mean, I'll say if a person is even like on my back or over my back or anywhere, like in that, I get this feeling and that I have to like push down to remind myself like, this is okay. This is consented, this is like, and I think that's the stuff that I work through. Um, and and I, I like my memory is so strong on those things because they never left me. Like I always held on to those things. And I said, I think it's just a reminder that we hold on to trauma in a different way than we hold on to joy. And I can link traumatic experiences to things that I'm going through today. I can't necessarily link joyful moments to 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 a thing that created something right like and 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 i think that's the interesting part about memory is like what gets stored and what kind of just doesn't mm. um but there are, are moments for me that they just they just don't leave me and i think that's why i'm able to remember them as well as i am um yeah and but I, I, yes yes and there's a tremendous amount of tenderness as well throughout the book. And I was also struck by that, right? That this, there's a softness around how you describe the people that you love. I, I, and it seems to me that you remember very well also the tenderness of the people around you, this kind of really um, fierce love that you were surrounded with. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think it's because like we just grew up we just grew up with people that just liked us. Like, I think, <laughs> yeah, because fair. I think you can grow up like loving people, but not liking them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, now I don't want to say like, that's valid. I just think that that's the truth. Like you can have aunts that just don't like their, their nieces and nephews and nibblings. Like they just don't. And that's the truth of the matter. And we could pretend that that's not what's happening, but it's like, you can have that happen. And when that happens, like it creates these um, dynamics of power and control and anger and hatred towards one another. And that's why I always, yeah, I talk about it in the book, but I talk about like, I'm not just like, my mother's not just my mother. My aunts are not just my aunts. Like they're my friends. And we worked to be friends with each other. So it makes it much easier because we're all friends. Like we don't have mm -hmm. to just like rest on love. Like love is where we started. And that's what Nana was saying. Like you start from love. Like she was like, the problem is people try to work to get to love. And she like, for her, you know, she like, well, we start from that. Like we are, the love is there. We got to figure out friendship and we got to figure out like, that's what you really got to figure out is do I like this person? Um, because love can be there. But do you like the person? And I think I liked all of my family members and that made yeah. it easy. <laughs> I'm looking now at Bill Hooks is all about love. And it, this reminds me of that, like her not con her calling us not to confuse um, like and love or not being liked with being loved or, you know, this kind of confusion yeah. that happens when we just assume that the people around us do love us or do like us. They Sometimes they don't. 
They don't. And that's yeah. okay. And, and that's okay. Like, I mean, it, it just is what it is, right? Like, I have no expectation to walk this earth and think that everybody is going to like me. Uh, I have no expectation walking this earth think that everybody is going to love me. Uh, I have no expectation that I will find romantic love that I will find. Like, I, I, I've, I've kind of removed those notions that you know, I'm unsuccessful if I cannot find marriage or a partner or that like, that's just a societal box that I'm unwilling to check. And, you know, if it happens at 35, 45, 55, 65, that it happens, if it doesn't happen, that's fine too. And, uh, but, but I think we, you know, we put so much pressure on, on that, like, forcing our way to love a person, forcing our way to like a person, forcing our way through compromise. I understand the notion of those things and I understand why we choose to do those things, compromise and certain things, but it does get to a point where is your compromise a deterrent to who you are? Because if it is, then, then that's not a compromise anymore. And I think I've just learned that there are just certain things that I'm just not gonna do. And that's just that, and that's okay. Like, it may not be okay for you, but it may not be okay for you, but it's okay for me. And it, it, and, and I have to worry about me, you know? And I think, mm-hmm. that's why I always say like, people always talk about like, oh, I gotta find my better half. And I'm like, I am a whole person. So I don't like work on being whole, hun. Like, you know? And I think, but that's the same with family. Y'all gotta work on being whole first. Like y'all filling each other's voids and you can't fill other people's voids. like. I'm not here to fill your voids. Like we got to come into this as people who are as whole as we can possibly be. And then we can support our whole identities together. Um, but I don't, I have no desire for you to try and support half of, half of me when I'm not fulfilled and be trying to always pour it. Like that, that can't work, you know? No, it's not sustainable. Yeah, at all. Busy Being Black will return after a short break. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation today with George M. Johnson, whose book, All Boys Aren't Blue, was released this week in the UK. George describes the book as a memoir manifesto and has woven throughout it valuable lessons for an emerging generation of queer Black folk. Throughout the book, you you weave these um, wonderful lessons. And I guess for listeners we should make who haven't yet read the book, we should make clear, because we're not offering any spoilers. I don't know if you noticed that. We're letting people, we're not going to tell them about the smiling or the bathroom. We're oh, just, okay. They have to read the book. <laughs> um, but you weave through these lessons, these life lessons um, that are not subtle, but are much are necessary. Um, for example, I, th- I thought of this uh, as you were speaking, let yourself unlearn everything you thought you knew about yourself and listen to what you need to know about those who navigate life outside the margins of a heterosexual box. You know, this refusal not to measure yourself and your success based on a partner or marriage, um, I think speaks to that. Yeah, like you you just... Was Was there someone who gave you the template for thinking outside of that box? If you had to pinpoint someone? It was probably my grandmother. I mean, she just didn't she just wasn't restricted to conventional things. Like she, she never was like this, like my grandfather, like they'll tell you, like my grandfather died in 87. Uh, but my mom would tell you like, you know, they always say like, daddy was always like the kind, cool, 
they was like, mommy was the, she ran the house. Like she ran everything and she ran the family. She ran everything as a woman, like as a black woman. And it just was like, she just never, there was just never like this notion in her mind of following behind a man, like ever. And I think like in seeing that, like she always owned her own businesses and made her own money and made her own decisions. And no man was like gonna tell her like what to do and how to do it and how she had to be. Um, you know, watching someone like that uh, who just didn't, wasn't constrained by uh, the ideals of what a woman had to be or how a woman had to act or how a woman had to present or like, you know, she she just was that type of lady. She was cool. She went to church every Sunday, but she cussed. She, you know, she, you know, she just didn't look at things like, you know, she didn't believe in um, the Bible, like shaming queer kids and shaming gays and she, like she never believed in that type of stuff and she never operated like that even though she could have because a lot of people in those type of orgs and, and, and religions do and so I think just being different she just allowed the space for it because I think in many ways she was different um she just was an mm -hmm. anomaly and a force and uh I think she allowed me uh to be that same thing in the world uh as I am now uh, you know, in many ways like her. Yeah, it reminds me, e. e. Patrick Johnson, I have queer tattooed on, on my neck. E. Patrick Johnson theorizes that um, everything he learned about queerness, he learned from his grandmother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting to, to sit and kind of think about, think about it. But my mom, my mom too, like my mom has always been very like about her own business, independent. Like, you know, I just got to really, really, be be around people who just didn't feel like they had to ascribe to societal things in that way um but yeah i really do think my grandmother was like that bridge like of like if it's something if it's something you want to do you do it um and and you got to live your best life for you like don't worry about everybody else like you got to do what's best for you at some point and um that was fully embracing my identity and being who i am you know i do want to talk about hope if you don't mind. Um, it's one of the um, stories that stands out for me the most in the book. I think it was just a beautiful story. Tell us who Hope was. Yeah, so Hope was my transgender cousin that I grew up with in New Jersey. Uh, Hope was probably maybe about 10 years older than I uh, growing up. And uh, she was my mom's uh, goddaughter. So uh, hope though would is who I would say is like kind of not like uh, I don't want to say I'm trying to think of the right words like I don't want to say like my family got to like not test it out but like basically like hope was like the first test of like oh we have a queer child in the family like there have been other queer people in my family but I think because hope uh, was trans uh, I think it was a different level of like oh okay, like this is different, like for all of us, like we really have to figure this out because Hope is is transitioning and Hope is telling us who she is, you know, um, as a young child, we're watching mm. it happen in real mm. time. Um, Hope though, for me was uh, inspirational. Hope was someone who I could look at and possibly see myself in. 
Uh, I was struggling with my identity. Uh, I was struggling with thinking, you know, there were times where I thought I was going to be trans because I was so effeminate. And I just always thought of myself in my daydreams as a girl. And I like, so I was processing things through like this lens of being a girl uh, in this particular body. And so to see someone in my family also doing and dealing with that same thing, I think we had like a very, very strong connection to where, um, you know, we, she knew who I was, even if we didn't necessarily talk about it. Uh, but we had our moments together where we would go to the store and like we had our moments together where we could kind of talk uh, just as cousins. And, uh, you know, you kind of go from this place of like being nervous to be out with her. Uh, I was 17 when we would go out and like, cause you know, people would stare and like as a 17 year old who was dealing with their own identity issues, it was already a lot. And then to add that on it, you know, you felt like, you just felt like overwhelmed by, by it. Uh, but then to grow to this place of where you realize it doesn't matter. And that like for hope to really live and exist in this world as a trans person, a, a black trans woman, a dark skinned black trans woman, in the 90s and in the, in the 2000s, like when there was no, you know, visibility and representation and there was no, I mean, there still is really no safety, but like we're talking about even worse during those times, right? Um, and, and be so bold and be so brave uh, to just do that. Uh, she really just stands as like this role model that I think so many of us can learn from about, you know, when you choose to, to be yourself and you choose your own happiness over what society is telling you you can and cannot be. Uh, and so, yeah, that's hope. And uh, like I said, a, a lot of people love that story. Um, a lot of people are actually shocked by it, I think, because they're like, you really grew up with a transgender cousin. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think that that, again, it just speaks volumes when you see who I am today. Uh, my family, we've just done really, really well with with the protection of queer kids. And uh, but I think I, I think the, the sad part about it is her story also, you know, signals to no amount of love at home can protect us. And although Hope was very, very loved at home and her family, um, there were societal things took her from us societal pressures and, and the things that trans people have to do to, to be themselves took her from us. And uh, I think that's the, the sad, unfortunate part about the story. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's beautiful that her story gets to live in the world now, so. Well, like you said, there is beauty in knowing that whichever way I go, I was here and I left here being my myself. Your story will now live on forever through my words so that whoever may read them, they can exist because you existed. And that's truly it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's what the book is about, right? Like the book is about the child who reads it and and now can look at themselves in the mirror and be like, okay, I, I'm not, I'm not, something's not wrong with me. Um, there, there, there is somebody out here who, who is, who has lived it. And so I'm not some anomaly. I'm not some mistake. I'm not some, some, some new thing that's happening. Uh, in, in, in culture, uh, you know, and I think that's what's most important. And I think for those who are already experiencing it, it's the validation uh, for them that because they've already been going through it. And, and so it's the validation of, okay, so I did, you know, I did experience these things and it's okay that I experienced these things, but now I get to say it and I get to tell my story too. And I get to live a little differently, you know, the weight gets lifted, I think, so. Mm. 
I think what's also important about Hope's story is that you show that it, it's a process that I think there's often this assumption that black people show up already, always already knowing everything, that we've figured this out, that we're not also navigating what it is to move through the world with, you know, with a trans cousin as you're trying to figure yourself out at the same time and the pressures. And I think writing about that honestly will be so helpful for, for so many people who who need to know that it's okay for them to be figuring it out and showing up as best they can. Yeah, it's a journey. And I think Hope Story tells it was a journey. And I think, you know, what's great about having another book coming out, uh, it'll also let people see where I'm at on my journey, because the next book talks more about where I am today. And so, I mean, it talks about childhood and everything, but you, you will hear more about where I am today and my journey. And so I think that's realistically that that's the beauty, like you said, of the story is that Hope just didn't one day come to the family like, okay, I'm Hope and I'm this and I'm that and I'm this and I'm that. It's like, no, like it was a journey for her and there was a transition that happened. And that transition happens for all of us when we go through young adult to adulthood. Uh, and it's one that could be forever happening. And I think that's the beauty of the story though, right? Like you see it play out in real time. Um, and so people, I think, I don't know, I think it gives them space and it gives them grace to, to still be figuring it out. And what has this process been like for you since releasing the book? Because I mean, obviously there's, you go through the process of writing the book and cl collecting all these, these stories and memories and making them make sense and putting them in narrative form and what have you. Yeah. But I wonder if you've learned something about yourself in the process that you weren't expecting or you've been surprised by anything that you, that you uncovered. I think I learned primarily like that it's okay to be vulnerable in this way, I think I learned that my transparency and my vulnerability is necessary if I'm going to be a storyteller. Like it's it's necessary. It, it's not like a choice you can make. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's just not a choice you can make. I think a lot of times, because I get that question all the time, like, well, did you cringe? Did you? And it's like, yeah, like, of course I cringed talking about the first time I I bottomed and talking about the first time I talked and talking about molestation. Talk about, yeah, like it's, it, you know, like you don't just go into that and, and you know, and, and again, like I think the thing is, like, if I was writing an adult memoir, nobody would question that. Like, oh, yeah, of course we're going to go into this is a young adult memoir. And I think that is why people were so shocked that it went all the way there uh, because of who the audience was going to be 14 year olds or 15 year olds. And I think people were like, Oh, like you really are telling them the tea. And it's like, well, yeah, like you have to, um, because I think the main thing that it really, really released was the fact that we all, we all have the, the five-year-old, 10 year old, 15 year old that's in us that still feels like it may have been silenced or feels like they never got the chance to say the things. And so I think that's, my favorite thing about the book is that the book is not really written by, it wasn't written by 33 year old me. It was really written by five year old me and it was written by 10 year old me and it was written by 15 year old me and it was written by 21 year old me. And so I think that's why the book connects so well is because when you read it, you don't feel like you are reading the story of a 33 year old. Like you, you feel like you are reading a five year old who just happens to have the language to say what they felt like mm. you I think you feel like you're reading the 13 year old who has the language to say what this experience felt like and so I think that's the beauty in the book is it's not 
me at 33 writing about these experiences. It is me at 13 with the language to now finally say, this is what I felt like, this is what it is, this is who I am. And so uh, the younger versions of me got to write this book. And I think that's what I, I came away with was it, it released all of that. And so now I don't think about that type of stuff. Like I don't get caught up in it anymore. Like mm -hmm. my past and all of that, like it's gone. Like I'm happy, you know? Yeah, and I think about the, the vulnerability requires you to step out on faith right? That the community yeah. will will hold you and hold your story and treat it with reverence and respect. And so thank you for stepping out on faith and for letting us receive it and hold you. I just wanted to acknowledge that, that that vulnerability is is powerful because it requires a great deal of faith. Yeah, thank you. Something that also stood out for me in the book, this is selfish, right? Because every time you read a book that someone's written, obviously certain points will stand out for you more than others. Um, but I think your reflection on your relationship with your dad um, really resonated with me, um, particularly in, as you know, you reflect on, on that relationship as an opportunity to challenge the role that heterosexual, that we're taught heterosexual black men play in our lives. And I, th I think it's a beautiful um, and kind um, examination of who your father was and could be for you. I think it's so important. So many of us are looking back at our fathers now, I'm doing it, saying, was he the monster that I made him out to be? And now that I have more space from it and I have more self-awareness, I'm like, oh, actually, I'm able to move through the world as I am because he was my father, right? He gave me, he gave me a lot. And that opportunity, I mean, what would you say about your relationship with your father and, and what you've learned looking back on that relationship? Yeah, it's interesting because it was tough. Like it was tough growing up with him in the house. And I always say that, like it was, he just was so stoic in many ways. Like he was, he didn't talk a lot. Like he talked to like men his age and he would have conversations with them. But like, in terms of like talking to us, like he, he just didn't, he didn't like babysitting us. He didn't like, you know, he was patriarchal in that way. Like he, he, was raised in many ways to think like, well, the woman, you know, the wife takes care of the kids and the wife cooks dinner and the wife, like, so he did, he would cook for himself. Like he would do things like that. And you would be like, we're all here, like too. Like you could make us dinner or like you could <laughs> cook dinner for everyone, but he would cook for himself all the time. He would do that. He would make his own breakfast and leave us spending for ourselves. And we just would ignore him like, okay, whatever. Um, but I think, when you're going through it, it's tough because as a child, you want to feel love in the way that you want to receive it. And so he showed it through gifts and he showed it through certain ways that he would support us. But that I always say, like, you know, it's interesting because everyone's love language is different. And so his way of showing it wasn't always necessarily the best way to for all of us to receive it, right? Some of us wanted to hear, I love you. Some of us wanted to hear or get a hug or like, you know, like things that he just was not accustomed to doing. Um, I think as an adult, we have a great relationship. Uh, I just saw him the other day. And, um, you know, we talk all the time now, like we don't talk on the phone and stuff as much, but like if we're together, like we talk, we talk about current events, talk about what's going on in the world. We talk about like, we, we talk, we have good conversations now. And he's very, very proud of who I've become and everything I've become. Um, and again, he read the book. And so for him to read the book and like, be proud of it, like, cause I, I, I didn't say everything I said about like in the book, I don't say he's perfect. 
Like, you know, I do say some things like Mm. that I don't like that, that we struggled with and that, you know, he, his stubbornness, I talk about his stubbornness in the book and he respected it though. Cause he understands like, you know, and it's fair. It's It's it's, fair. Yeah. Because it, it didn't lead me to a place of like disdain for him. Like it just led me to understanding more because as an adult, I'm, I can be that way at times. And my friends have to sometimes tell me like, I don't like when you're cynical. I don't like when you, like you do this thing sometimes where it gets cynical. Like that's what some of my friends will tell me. And so it's like, I have to work on that, right? Or like, sometimes they tell me like, George, sometimes you are hard. And they're like, we know why you're hard though, because like the world treats you harshly. And so they like, you know, work on being softer. So like, that's the thing I work on. I just think I get to do it in real time. Whereas with kids and adults, we don't have that setup where a child can say like, this hurt me to an adult. Um, yeah. Adult apologies are, or parent apologies are <laughs> few and far between, but, yes. but we, we see conversations now happening more where parents publicly are saying like, I do apologize to my child if I made a mistake or I do yeah. apologize to my child. Cause you have to, you know? Yes. So I think that's where we are, you know, me and him. And I think, I think it's important, right? We as queer people, queer Black people, we make these demands, these, these, these rightful demands that people appreciate us, respect us, love us, and care for us as we are, as we show up in the world, as the people we want to be. But I wonder if we often extend that back, right, to our parents who showed up as they could, did the best they could with what they had, showed love to us in the ways they understood how to, and this kind of reflecting back in it, having a kind of a fair analysis as fair as it can be. Um, analysis I think is so helpful. It's, it's, it certainly helped me have a better relationship with my dad as an adult. Like I couldn't have raised two kids at 27. I couldn't have, you know, flown I, these kids you know, around the world as part of the military. Like that's crazy. I, I think about that too. Like I'm 35 and I don't have like, I would be like, what would I be doing if I had kids right now? Like, I would be nuts. Like, I don't even know how my mom did it. I think about that all the time. Like, how did she raise two kids and work? And like, I'm like, I can barely just raise myself, I feel like some days. Like, yes, and I, feel <laughs> I think about like when I get a cold or I get like sick, I'm like, well, how would I be sick and have kids? Like, what would my, like, I would be in bed, like trying to figure out how to make them break. And I'm struggling to even get out of my own bed. Like, how did my mom do that? How did my dad do that? How did... So you do, you know, the older you get, you start to process just a little bit differently. Like, yeah, that that's tough. That's a tough thing. Like that we're, we think we are just like, we, for some reason we call it like natural, but that's not really natural. Like, because it, it don't just click. Like nothing just turns on when you get a child that is like, oh, okay, now I can raise a child. Like you don't know. You really don't know if you can raise a child. When you have a child, you can make the decision to have a child. Y'all can say y'all are ready for children. And when a child get there, you still be like, yeah, we were not, I, I, I don't think this is for me. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, this valid is a, too. a breathing human. And I think that's valid too. People get married and have kids all the time but have no space to be like, damn, I, I'm not good at being a mother or this is not for me. And we think, you know, and we shame those people like, well, you shouldn't have had kids. It's like, well, you don't know until you have one sometime, right? It's like mm-hmm. you go buy a Porsche and then you drive the Porsche for two weeks and then you're like, damn, I don't think I like this Porsche. 
Well, you Sorry, didn't know that <laughs> before you bought the shit, right? So you have a child, you whole life, like, oh, I can't wait to have a child. You have the child. And then a couple months in, you like, I don't like this. That's, but you've made the commit, but that's tough. And so I was like, that's one of those things where I'm always working like grace. That's like my word for 2021 is like, have grace with yourself for things that you may walk into that you then be like, damn, I don't like this. Or I'm not feeling like, and be okay with the fact that like society may be like, what you mean you don't like that? I don't, like, I don't know what to tell y'all, but I don't, right? Like I got into an argument one time with my friends because I told them, I was like, I don't want to be the primary parent. And it was like, oh no, that'll change. I was like, no, it won't. Like I, I literally, I have no desire to be the primary caregiver, the primary, I, that is not my role. Like how would you know that? And I was like, y'all, I think the problem is y'all have not done the work to understand yourself enough to know what your likes are and what your dislikes are. I love my nibblings and I love the kids and I love being able to return them to their parents. I do not have a desire to be someone's primary everything. Mm-hmm. I don't. And that's okay. And I think that is the one thing that my relationship with my dad, he had no desire for that. But I am taught to shame him for that. And I shouldn't because he just had no desire for it. And mm-hmm. he he might not have realized it until well into it that like, this is not my thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. you know, and even with my mom. I think there were times where she was like, you know, I, I remember the one thing she said, she was like, I was Gregory's wife, I was your mother, then I was Garrett's mother, and then y'all both went to college. And I had to figure out who the hell I was. I'm 50 years old now, I gotta figure out who I am. Hmm. And I think that's the lesson that I've learned is like, when you know who you are, you do know who you are. And I think we should allow our parents and ourselves space to know who we are and have those type of conversations and relationships to understand like parents, there is no rule book on how a parent parents. And, uh, you know, my dad had, there were things he did not do. And I cannot always be so quick. We can talk about it and we can work on adjusting things and we can do, but I can't just be so quick to throw it away and throw him away because like, I would have to throw myself away because I'm, I'm working on, cause, cause at some point, one of my nibblings is going to say like, well, Matt, Matt, I didn't like, I don't like that you do this. I don't like, and I'm gonna have to eat it and be like, well, damn, I remember when I didn't like when my, when my parent didn't do this thing. And so it's like, but now we have the conversation. Yeah. That's the difference, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. I love that. I particularly love the, the children as Porsches analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I know everybody will be like, now George, I'm like, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's just, it, it really like, but it's right. Postpartum. I mean, but for real, like postpartum depression and people really, really shame women for that. And it's like, y'all, do you not understand? Like that's a whole new way of life when you bring a life into the world. And it's just yes. not something you could prepare for no. or something that you, that you'll know that you'll like. Yes. Once it happens. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an yeah. honesty a lot of people don't like to encounter, I think. We're nearing the end of our conversation and something I flagged and highlighted like a wild person in the book is when you push back against it gets better. You say, make it better. Can you say more about that? 
Yeah, I remember there was like this whole movement, like there were like these commercials and everything, like it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. And I remember like, kind of like you buy into that, like, okay, maybe that's the truth. Like maybe, maybe I am, you know, 21 or 22, still struggling with identity, but, but maybe if I just keep going through life, it'll, it'll just start to get better one day. And then you realize like, it really doesn't get better. <laughs> like, you know, you come out, you tell everybody, you invite all these people into your life and into your identity, into your thing. And years later, you still getting homophobia, transphobia, still getting called out your name, still getting, so like, it, it just doesn't just automatically get better. And, you know, we say those type of things all the time. Like it gets better, reminds me of like the, the term hope. You know, Cause you'll hear people say, I hope it gets better. Well, if you can actively make the thing get better for the person, don't hope, do the thing, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pray for you. And that's the prayer. Like, no, like if you're going to pray for somebody, like legit, go pray for the person. Like take the 10 seconds to say the prayer for the person you just told you were going to pray for, right? Like that's an action, right? Prayer is an action. It's not a thought. It's an action. So that's when I say like, you know, make it better. Like if you have the power to change someone's existence or you have the power to change someone's livelihood, like then you just have to do it. Like you do the thing. But if you continue to sit and wait on, on hope and continue to sit and wait on just time making things better, like time doesn't just necessarily make things better. I think about you know, something I always say is like, listen, like if, if you're living in a city with homelessness and you walk past homeless people every day, you can do one of two things. You can keep voting for politicians to hope that they fix the problem or you get to a point where you like, okay, well maybe I can get a couple of people in the community and we can fix it ourselves. Like, what what is it? How do we fix this? Like y'all are all sleeping under the train tracks. Like how do we get a building? How do we collectively as a community put this money together and, and house these people? And how do we do like, that's just, that's how you make things better, right? Like you just mm. do it at some point. And so I think, especially in this day and age, like complacency is what kills us. Like people get so complacent so complacent with things and it's just like oh you know kind of like where we are now right like in america like we had a change of power happen but we ain't had a lot of change happen since the change of power like people still waiting on checks vaccines it's just a, it's just a not, different white supremacist <laughs> you know like it's, yeah. it's just not happening and i think people now are finally starting to realize like yeah it just don't get better and that's why i said like i think we're in a period of national mourning and national grief not just for the people who have died but for the time we have lost and for the realization that this this shit is just not gonna flip it's not mm. a, a switch is not being flipped like everybody was hoping for. It's just not connecting as fast. The dots are not moving. And it's simply because you have people who are not making it better. They're just not. They, they are actively not making it better. And you are seeing how that plays out in real time. Mm. Well, to close, I normally ask all of my guests the same question, what do you hope for? But I think your answer... <laughs> I think your You're answer would be that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think your answer would be I don't hope I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean that's that's really that's really what it is and you know one of the things that I always teach people about hope is like to not be afraid of hopelessness. Um 
some of the best things that I do have not come from hope, but come from hopelessness. Mm. Uh, when you get to a place of hopelessness, that is the, the black saying, uh, you know, we made a way out of no way. The only way that you could know that no way existed is if you got to the realization that there was no way and you still made a way, right? I think that's the difference between hope and doing, right? Hope is waiting on it and waiting on the way to arrive. Doing is acknowledging that there is no way and still making a way. And so, mm. yeah, I just want people to, to be less, less hope <laughs> and more do. <laughs> I received that. <laughs> George M. Johnson is a writer and LGBTQ activist. Their memoir manifesto, All Boys Aren't Blue, is available wherever books are sold. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. I'm so busy being black.